So there's always principles that we see in the Proverbs, and you know that because the book is endeavoring to give us wisdom. Solomon and his pennings of it do so with what we would call in contemporary language quips. They're also at times phrases which pose as an enigma, mysteries that get solved as we ponder them and as we enter into experiences that God both allows and delivers us from. Much of it hinges on a moral foundation because wisdom cannot be bankrupt. It needs to have the investment of morality and immorality bankrupts. It just destroys, spoils the treasures that God has given to us. And so one of the ironies there, because when you look at Ecclesiastes, uh, the Lord allowed him, in spite of his own moral failures, to incredibly draw from it perspectives of truth. Now there's also hope in that, and I would say this, is that when there's ever a failure, then it's the faithfulness of God that gives us triumph to do better and to still be used mightily by him. And so very often what happens is the enemy creates both in the heart and mind of one who has failed the indictment that you'll never be used and your life is worthless and you won't be saved. And one of the things that we have to remember is that God is both gracious. He's also very skillful at correcting. And we've all been corrected by the Lord. And those corrections are important. I, I still laugh to this day whenever I see a t-shirt that says, the beatings will continue until morale improves. I, I always say, I receive that, Lord. And I laugh because it always comes at a time in which I deserve a beating, a beatdown, um, a correction by the Lord. And so he humorously, in my opinion, reminds me that even circumstances are permitted until my morale improves. See, all that God is desiring is that there's improvement that leads to him being in management of our life. So when we say, Lord, then improve me, then he says, great, I will improve you by approving you and managing over your life. Because in essence, everything that you are is an asset from me to you. And my investments come back to me with gain. Every single one of us is an investment that God will receive a hundredfold over in what he's done. How he does it, don't have a clue. I just know that he intends to have from us what he's invested, and it's much larger than we can imagine. Therefore, that is a worthy thought to give him praise for. Lord, reign in me over all the earth. What a great song. So here we go right now. It has a domestic emphasis, and it's a great domestic emphasis. Very often the contrast as well points to the same, if you would, theme. There's a positive and there's a negative 
and it's central to at least the subject right now in this domestic first passage it says the wise woman builds her house that's the emphatic very often we take the negative and then work from it into the positive I think that God, though, has a heart that says, I want to work from the affirmative and then address the consequential or the negative. What happens when we're approached and what we find out is the discovery of something special that someone has taken notice of us, thinks about, admires, but then on the other side, is the word that refines us, the, the thing that allows us to have, if you would, a setback. In other words, a reset might be the better word. A setback can be actually something that has a good meaning too. Progress stalled, setback because of something, and he resets, establishing us. So I like all of the imagery there. In this case, the word is for the woman, and it's a commendation. The anticipation is that a woman is wise. And with her wisdom, the emphasis is on the house she builds. This was a place in which the flourishing of a family got its roots, was in the domestics of a mother raising their children, nurturing them, abiding with them, teaching them precepts and principles, initiating correction, working not separately from her husband, but complementary to him. From the beginning, he would till the field, and by the sweat of his brow, he would make opportunity for a mother, and you remember the compliment, he named her Eve, for she was the mother of the living. And so when our society began to turn into the industry as opposed to ministry, well, we got a lot of things done as a nation, that's for sure. But there's a lot of things that got undone in being spiritually vital as families. Divorce increased. Dysfunction became, if you would, a norm Immorality prevailed over morality, acceptation over what we would say are limitations, parameters that we don't cross. And so we can cite that sociologically. I remember my dad having to teach that. Retired from the Marine Corps, he was a brilliant thinker. You've heard me say that, but he was also a brilliant teacher, I thought. And I sat under him as a teacher. Um, and sociology was, of course, the study of how a group, a civilized culture, uh, operates in a governing fashion to what should be the, the needs of the people as a whole. What happens when norms and morals decline? What's its effect? What happens when a culture begins to no longer have a desire for true spirituality? What happens when drugs are imposed and become 
the guiding light to a youthful mind that's still developing. I saw a lot of my friends, as you've heard before, that once they got into drugs, they saw another light, and they did. It was a satanic light. And I remembered seeing it in their eyes as if a flashlight were on it. And so the principle here that's being highlighted is the value, the importance of the home and the role of the mother. Paul would cite that a mother who, a woman who is dedicated to bearing children and raising them would be saved. He's not talking about a salvation message. He's saying that in everything that God has equipped her with, the value increases. There's no loss that's suffered, both to her children, to her husband, to the home that she's building, to the church that they're attending. See, when the Industrial Revolution came, it had its own requirement. If you want the cogs to turn in these gearings and you want to accomplish more and have much, Everybody needs to be involved. So then at one time where we had the home school, there became the public school. At one time, the home school did lend itself in frontier um, educational areas. A conglomeration of home school moms sharing their giftings with other moms and their children. And that was a great ideology but soon the government said, we can do that better. Now, you go out there and pick garlic cloves and till the fields, knit one, pearl two, knit three, give us your pearls. And so we began to diminish the purpose of the home and the necessary, the necessary encouragement of a home that operated with a husband that was laboring hard in the field. And so my generation probably was one of the last ones that literally had the Ozzie and Harriet leave it to Beaver family. So the, the baby boomers were the ones that probably still can remember the coffee cups of their fathers being filled by the mother in an apron and we getting mom's spittle to pull back our hair if it was out of order and the little lunchies that were packed for us off to school. At one time, school could be entrusted both patriotically and spiritually because at one time when I was growing up in school, we had a flag salute, but we also had, who wants to do morning prayer? And the kids would fight to come up. I mean, that's civil unrest in a classroom just because they want to fight to pray. But then I remember as a teacher where no, there were some that did not stand. They would not turn to the flag. They would turn their back on the flag. My dad's biggest challenge was when flags started getting sewn on the britches of the hippies. And it was all he could do not to go into combat again. But he was a tempered man. That was an insult to his years in World War II and Korea and Vietnam for the disrespect of the flag. So verse 1 is important because it does establish exclusively 
a beautiful compliment to the woman that builds her house. And the house of any man that prospers is, in my opinion, linked to the woman that with the spiritual giftings she has, the love that that is hers devotedly to God, and ultimately the focus that she has on those children. Do I believe that Christian families can still be influential and uncorrupted in a school system? I do believe if the nurturing is sound and precepts are followed and discipline is assertive, that they can be highly influential. But it's a hard system nowadays. And when I was in fourth grade as a teacher, teaching fourth graders, I saw what was coming up the line. I was going, you kidding me? Did I hear that kindergartner say that word? Did I see the behavior of that first grader towards a fifth grader show disrespect? Did I just come out of a library in which the librarian took 10 minutes to quiet down a class? And so even I began to see a demise, and now the public school system speaks for itself. Nonsense. The system does. There are great teachers there. There are wonderful teachers there. I shared with the class, I know you're thinking you're never going to make it through chapter 14. I believe you. But, but I was at the Wright's store, and I was visiting with Curtis, and just he's doing a marvelous job on a project that I have for him. And Josiah was there. And so I was backing out and moving from it, and a woman was doing some just kind of business chat with both of them. That's what I think I recalled. Either with Josiah, probably with Josiah. But I, I just, my ears were just pricked. And then I said, as I looked at her, I said, Norma Flum? She looked up. She said, yes. I said, I'm Rich Ablett. Rich, how are you? Well, she was a teaching assistant when I first became a teacher at 25. So when I came in as a fresh teacher, you know, my room was the one that they burned through three full-time teachers before they got me. And that class couldn't conquer me. But she was an aide next door to who was my very good friend, Bob, he took care of the fifth and sixth grade split class. I had a fourth grade class. And Norma was just a spiritual giant. She was the first woman professionally that said, Rich, you ought to come out to church. I know you're a believer. You know, there's a time to put down the pen, tuck away those papers. There's a service tonight, Wednesday. You can join us. There's several of us actually from the school that are going, oh, thanks, Norma, but I, you know, got things to do. Papers to get caught up on. Okay. Hey, Rich, there's a Sunday service. It's great. It's going to be awesome. You ought to come. Norma, thank you. You're so considerate of me. I just, you know, I'm touched deeply, truly. And so she was the first one that literally, by invitation, began the furrowing of my heart. And then, of course, I began to have students in my class that were strong believers, whose parents really loved me. 
it wasn't that I wasn't a believer. I was just an inactive follower. <laughs> Got my own role, my thing to do. And I justified it just like maybe some of you remember. But to get back to the story, I said, Norma, it is so good to see you after all these years. Rich, what are you doing? I said, I passed her here. We've been here for over 12 years now. Well, I said, where are you fellowshipping? ACF? No, I'm at Edgewater. I said, well, tell my friends, hi. Tell Matt, hi. Tell Mark Scudstead, hi. Tell your youth pastor, hi, from all of us. Because we hosted Edgewater here, their youth group. And so this was a connection that was seamed up by a woman of God. And she had, by the way, a hard row to hoe. Her husband wasn't tracking at all. He was not leading that family spiritually. Kids that because of that situation didn't really grow up fondly seeking the Lord. But she never stopped. And so I said, this has been so meaningful. And I said, so where are we right now? Rich, I'm 80 now. I said, you're kidding me. I hope I can look that good when I'm 80. So we laughed because I said, you didn't even recognize me. Well, Rich, you're not exactly 25 anymore. <laughs> I know, but I'm not chopped liver. <laughs> There's some embellishment, but um, the point being made here is that she was a woman who, even in spite of domestics that weren't per se the ideal, the Aussie and Harriet family that I had. She drafted me into a family that became even bigger. And mine wasn't dysfunctional, but my goodness, coming into the church, how much more functional it made me. And 80. And she said, I'm going back to be a part of a woman's Bible study tomorrow. I said, that's awesome. I said, you ought to come on a Monday. And if you have a weekend, we can find a place for you and sit Christy's a wonderful teacher. She's doing that every other week. So at any rate, the point being made on the theme of the significance of the woman and the reason that they, this woman is cited here is because on the opposite contrasting statement, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. And I'm just going to make it real simple. The pull down happens when hands that are not clasped in reverence to the Lord lifted up to him in praise and adoration, but they're clasped literally contrary to him. They don't have a grip on their life. They are not in the grip of God, and they do not have an alliance with their spouse in a way that makes them a team that is indomitable and cannot be dominated by culture. Their gig isn't about the children it's different, and that's the pull-down. But every woman that has, for instance, been in that scenario has an opportunity to flip it and become a part of the other scenario. But the family, the hubby, how could she possibly have a second start? Because God's given even a larger family for those gifts and that privilege to be utilized in. And that's one of the things that you do give hope for is that maybe it didn't work out. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's 
the opportunity that creates the ideal to mend, if you would, the bad memories, but God's at work all the time to build us up and the woman building her house, God's house. Verse 2, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. And I like the emphasis on that. It's not a capitalized his, so it's a personal pronoun. And it's saying that we have a righteousness that is to be uprighteous. Our standing is in the Lord, and God gives us a responsibility for that. And there's an important part of saying we take responsibility. When we all of a sudden become irresponsible in the walk, then I'm not saying that it means that we have no fear of God, but what begins to happen is we lose our needful reverence for him. All of us have done that. The activities that impose themselves on us, the busyness, compromises too. We've all had those patterns. That's why in what we see in the church, it's a marvelous conglomeration of personality and spiritual giftings. And it's rather amazing because we say, how could God take us, we know ourselves, and consider us both special and chosen as a priesthood, and we f can find ourselves actually believing in that when what we also know about ourselves, and it's this, it's this beautiful, redemptive work of God and grace pouring himself out extending to us mercy that we do not deserve and gifting us in ways that a world cannot understand. We even have trouble grasping it. But the walking in his uprightness fears the Lord. So even when we at times are challenged by how well we're walking, the responsibility, it's not an indictment, the responsibility is on us. Just make that change 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 in the whisper of a prayer lord i goofed on that thank you for your mercy thank you for your grace i didn't mean it i did commit it i did think it i didn't do it in the manner that you wanted me to and so lord i just want to right now reestablish myself in uprightness that is my responsibility to honor you in fear and it really is that simple you don't need an elder or pastor or anybody to put you in right standing because we have a mediator. That is Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He is our Lord. He's our big brother. He's our friend. All of the things that relate to him being our, our all in all are at our disposal. And so it's one of the greatest things that we can ever do is to believe that God is everything we ever need. It takes the burden off of blaming other people for what we're going through or for us to think more highly of ourselves that inevitably provokes pride and creates a corruption. That's why one of the best things that God has given to us are the opportunities of humility where we can get pushed around and we can say, Lord, I know how that feels because you know how it feels. We can get slandered. Lord, 
I know how that feels because you, before me, knew how it felt. And so we have this walk in which the proximity of ourselves with the Lord for the sake of uprightness, fearing the Lord, people watch that. They see us and they go, what are you governed by? Your temperament is not governing you. And you're certainly not a weakling. There's a strength in you. You know, you really do get tested in uprightness when all of a sudden somebody's challenging your rightness. And rather than being admired for being up, they want to do something that causes you to fall down, to be down. But he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord. But he who is perverse in his ways despises him. That's why the contrast of the perverse to the one who is pure is night and day, black and white. We don't see eye to eye. We don't necessarily play together well. In fact, God would say, don't play with them because they aren't well. And you're not going to change them on their playground. You let them come over to your playground. Change can happen. But it's not on the presumption that they have any games that you can involve yourself in and come out a winner. It never works that way. I always used to tell my kids at recess, we have four zones that you can participate in the same game, but you can pick who you play with. I'm out here to monitor, and I'll take your defense if you're picked on, but you can avoid that altogether if you assess. So who's over there? Huh. Three bullies that I'm occupying the fourth square? Something seems like I'm going to get a trouncing. And so he said, you've got areas that you can go to, you can pick whether you're going to enjoy a game or become a part of the game. And usually it can be identified by perversity in language, perversity in behavior. And if it is, you say, I choose to have purity. And when we miss on that, which is easy to do with the invasiveness of all kinds of media, then we say, Lord, cleanse me. And he does. You read the word, cleanse me, and he does. The spirit always moving in that direction to do what? Keep the house. It's his house. He knows how to keep the house. He knows how to rearrange the furniture in our soul. He knows what to take out. You can always tell when trash hasn't been taken out because it doesn't smell like flowers anymore. And somebody's got to take it out. I'm always reminded that those cats are cute and esteemed by one in our family greatly. But if the cat box doesn't get changed, I know who the culprit is. That's me. It's just not pleasant. In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. So you know that there's both rod and staff. The scriptures speak of that. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. They're tools of a shepherd. We always associate them with, if you would, shellackings, beatings, leanings. But they're actually tools that are endeavored to make for an individual 
um, a successful protection, literally, of the tended, the sheep. The contrast here is it says the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. It's not the rod of a shepherd. It's the rod of a prideful, arrogant person. And with it, it harms. It doesn't lead, it doesn't guide, it doesn't protect, it harms. But the lips of the wise will preserve them. The contrast is interesting. One has a tool that's destructive, and they won't be able to do anything else but destroy. But then the compliment comes by noticing this very interesting component part of our body. It's the lips that form words that allow speech to be intelligible, that have the opportunity to speak saving words, graceful words, honorable words. And those lips, if they are a part of one who is wise, is a preservative. So it's really important to use our lips to be conveyors of wisdom because there may be within earshot a fool who hears those words and who's challenged by them. Not necessarily offended, but challenged. Some of the most significant corrections I received before following the Lord diligently were from the lips of wise people who spoke in a manner that I heard and was impressed by. And it planted itself because it was spiritual language that was being formed on those lips. And the Lord had them implanted into my heart. It's funny, when I think back on Norma, one of the phrases that I've never forgotten, and I shared this with the students today, this was her phrase. And maybe it's really appropriate to say, God speaking through here. The best that I can remember of it was this. Are you listening? That was Norma. Now, you may think it was to the students. Maybe sometimes, but she was really sweet with the students. When Bob was teaching, he was a real gentleman. Norma would be the one that would just float through the classroom and give that little touch with just that ever so slight pinch on the right here. Whatever... Whatever causes the dysfunction through neurology that paralyzes a student in which the speech apparatus and the functionality of fist just goes numb. And hi there, you're listening to Bob, aren't you? That's good. Good boy. Good boy. Um, but what she would say is not to the students. She would yell it up at the speaker. We had intercoms back then, so... You see speakers here? We had one in the, each classroom. They weren't as classy as that. But we had a secretary, and her job was to spy on us. That's what the story goes. And so Norma just, <laughs> that's what she would do. Before any of us got together to have our teaching fellowship, our cup of coffee, and how's it going in your class, and sharing things, she would look up at that speaker. She goes, are you listening? And this secretary would just immediately, you know, her hair would go, and she'd hit the intercom button. She was, Norma was astute at that. And that was her, that was her, and I think to some degree, 
she was modeling what very often the Lord also can say to us through that type of personality. Are you listening? Now, God wants us to listen, but the enemy doesn't want us to listen. Norma's, in this case, was realizing that there was one who was listening, not for good, but listening corruptingly. She was the secretary that took notes because there was rebellion. There wasn't any rebellion. We were wonderful as a contemporary group of teachers, but the secretary had problems, truly did. We ended up having a better understanding as I aged. I was able to appreciate the type of life she had. She was so bored that she just had to find her nose into everybody's joy. She couldn't stand us laughing. So at any rate, that was Norma though. Are you listening? And I was just going, who does that? Who challenges the secretary? Norma does. She challenged the elitists. And she taught me how to challenge them as well when it was necessary over the welfare of the classroom. I like that, though, too, because, again, this was a woman of strength and spirituality, a fun gal, and uh, who has, you know, we were able to laugh in the years that we've, that have passed. Verse 4, where no oxen are, the trough is clean. And this goes on to say, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. And so it really is saying that to an observer, and maybe even what we think is the ideal, it's cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere. Well, that's a proverb, but it's, a, it's not a spiritual, biblical proverb. It's a catchphrase. And probably our grandmothers used it, great-grandmothers used it. But this is saying that when there is a work, both in the home and in the church, things get dirty. One of the things that happens in the home is that both the husband and wife can feel overwhelmed by ultimately keeping up on the kids. We've all been there, right? Laundry piled up, dishes piled up. And it seems to be that as they grow up, it's still happening. <laughs> What's happening? Well, there's ox. There, there's a strength coming into your home and they're, they're keeping things on the up and up by putting you on the down down. You're picking up. You're managing. You'd like the ideal, but the ideal's heaven. So therefore, I'm just reminded that every day. One of the things that I do, and it's not a boasting point, I'm just telling what I do, is I wake up at five, and my devotional time actually is both quiet, but it's also industrial. So if there are dishes to do, I will always say, I'll get them. If it's important to get them done in that moment, that's when they'll get done. But most of the time, we'll take care of the essentials after dinner. But if it's really sprucing it up and taking care of it, then that's my gig in the morning. I move through the dishes. 
I moved through the laundry. It's not that she doesn't, but she's done so many years of it. It's payback. She hasn't told me to do it. It's a way that I'm able to honor her in doing it. Because she still, even if those are the mechanics, and I'm not trying to, you guys are going, great, Rich, thanks for emphasizing what you do. Now it's expected of me and what I don't do. Um, she's still the best laundry folder in the universe. If she turns folding over to me, it's an altogether different reality. It's not pretty. And, but I can get things going to where they can be folded. And I can take care of some things. So the, the important part here is that even as church life uh, blossoms and activities you see happen, you know, we have a church that's both vital in terms of the conduct of lambs and sheep and the oxen. It's a picture of the facets of both how we tend the young and they'll get messy, how we tend the mature and inspire them in what their responsibilities are, and how we also enable the strong in the church to take their positions and to repersonate. In other words, if you choose to keep it so clean all the time that you give no one an opportunity to enjoy liberty and the fellowship that creates disruption and the chair profile and coffee. Some of you may say, yeah, there's some coffee stands that I don't see anymore. And then some people say, and there are some coffee stands that were never there before. What are you doing? I don't know. Trying to keep up with the ox. I got my squirt bottle. We got some machinery, but you know, we're probably going to have spots here. And to me, that's not a bad thing. It means we got ox here. And so we're endeavored to keep in shape on the industry. So I'm saying that the industry of keeping a home, it's not intended to frustrate us. It's intended to actually keep us both humble and to realize there's a productive work. I always enjoyed um, The Sound of Music. I saw it way later than when it first came out. But, but the part I enjoyed was the, the way the, the colonel had his kids. They were all lined up. He'd play his little mouth piccolo and all the kids would come marching in. They'd introduce themselves and then you know, stand at attention. They all went through, how many kids? Seven, eight, whatever. Do you remember that movie, Sound of Music? Okay. But see, in my mind, it's going, oh, that's awesome. That's where kids should be. March, march, march. And so we actually, we actually did, you know, we would have fun with that, you know, the salute and all of that. But in Mexico, I say, Chrissy, the answer to our laundry problems our drapes turned into uniforms. They just get one uniform. We could say goodbye to laundry forever. They wear their uniforms. It's all the same color. I don't have to worry about whether I got the blue mixed up with the red because I'm color deficient. Just, and then if we need to, we'll just hose them down and hang them from the line. I mean, they're in their britches and we'll just hang them from the line. This could be awesome. This could turn missions on its you know, face. Godly face. That's all I want to say. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. And so this is today, that's such an applicable verse. Lying is becoming so prevalent, truth becoming almost ghosted because everybody's got a talking point. What we do is we stay true to the word. We allow the 
word of God to be the source of what it is we can say and what we can't say. When there is a dispute over what is being said, we talk to the Lord about it. We may not be able to change culture immediately, but we can persuade culture ultimately. And our job is to remain on task of praying for them, at times being abused for a season by them. But you never know who that woman or man, young child, may even be before we would even believe it, a vessel used by God in his house and to come in. Because all of us came in from somewhere at some point in time to be highly influential, gifted, and to be those who as well are living a blessed life. You know, I know that we're looking at the calendar. I know we're hoping that the year turns differently, but I don't have any certainty of that. What I do have a certainty of is God's right on the mark for his plan. I know that the coming of the Lord is closer than it has ever been. I know that the world scene right now with Israel is more than fascinating. I'm trying to find language that can be encouraging, but the only thing I can say is that you're having a Zechariah moment, a chapter 12 reality in which God is making Israel a cup of trembling. There are those who fear them. And if they don't, all they have to do is go back into their Arabic archives and study the battles that they lost trying to take on Israel. And all the world is setting their course. We've got ships I've never historically heard of, can't even, in which significant carriers and battleships from the United States of America have been moved into position. Armament being sent to them. And Israel right now standing firm and saying, this will never happen to us again. And by the way, when you hear the Gaza Strip, ancient Philistia, it was all God's country. Just needing to let you know that. What is the Gaza Strip, Strip was a political acceptation. It was working, if you would, in advance on a two-state system, ultimately. But the Gaza Strip is Israel's, not the Palestinians. It's theirs. When you hear from the sea to the rivers, the rivers to the sea, God says, yeah, I gave that to them. I gave them from the rivers to the sea, to the great sea, the Mediterranean. They have all of that vast resource of land. And it's only because they've been gracious and had tried to broker for peace and didn't initially take care of the enemies that God said vanquish them and made compromises to the Temple Mount. I don't know why it happened, but ultimately God had permitted it. And it's because Israel will be a cup of trembling. And when we look and we see where they are and where the church then would have to be in order for Israel to recognize Messiah, it has to be when the church is gone and Antichrist comes in and becomes the central world leader and in three and a half years imposes because of the lie that they believe about him, his sinister nature, and requires Israel to worship him. And these things couldn't be closer. Israel has all of the component parts 
to basically raise up a temple that will need to be funded. You can see it all so clearly. So a scoffer, it says in verse 6, seeks wisdom and does not find it. And so that's why very often the thing that is so available to any that ask is wisdom. God says, you ask it, you got it. Y'all never get tired of giving it to you. Which is why at times we can be put into a predicament in which we have to say, My, knowledge is not going to get me through this. I have knowledge through experience, but it's not working. I've exhausted it. And so that's the time we say, Lord, I'm praying to you right now for wisdom in which everything that either I know or someone that I do know will have the resource granted to help me in this time of need. And it may be something in, that relates to people that you need to talk to, wisdom in terms of families that you need to shore up and put back together, whatever it may be. It's wisdom that ultimately God grants you by request, but the scoffer is not going to get it. It doesn't mean, though, you can't model the excellency of petitioning for wisdom. And it should be that even when there's a scoffer, you can invite them to hear your prayers regarding wisdom that perhaps they need. I pray for guys that, are, that have been involved in the building of our home. I meet with them. I say, let's pray, guys. <sighs> okay. They're not necessarily believers, but they are in that moment because I've made them included. Oh, Rich, we have something that's uh, happened right now. Hmm. What do you want us to do? Let's pray. Ready? And they'll whip off their hats and bow their heads. Yeah, that felt good. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll see a resolve to this and God gets the glory. But thanks for letting me know and let's see how it goes. And so opportunities that we have vocationally or domestically even though you're not going to necessarily come off as the genius, you are coming across as the one who has voiced confidence in God as the problem solver. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. It won't mean that you will not be admired for teaching somebody about the need to not scoff at God, but to learn the principles of living a godly life that's dependent upon calling upon him well, I only like to do that in my quiet devotional times. Why? It's the easiest thing to do publicly is take command of your zone and say, let's pray. We pray even when we have breakfast. Today, we I don't remember, but I said, hey, let's, let's pray for breakfast. I know that the guys that have already started cracking eggs and mixing have probably done that. If not together, they've done it independently. But when the students come in there, anybody that's there, Let's pray. And today it was kind of interesting because all of a sudden it, it formed kind of this little cozy little, you know, it wasn't a huddle. It was, a, it was our hand-holding prayer session. And so the very hands that are ready to eat this great food that's come to our table, we're just holding hands. We don't always hold hands. Sometimes we're dispensed like little stars in the area and we pray. But this was kind of a squishy morning. So we're going to pray. And all of a sudden, the pancakes that were supposed to be grizzly bear lumberjacks became Swiss pancakes. They were like crepe Suzettes from France and Swiss pancakes from Switzerland. And Dalton was the one that made it. And if you looked at it, you go, there's a good risk here that these are going to become 
like biscuits. <laughs> and all of a sudden he turned into this French Swedish chef while he's wearing a lumberjack outfit. Thank you, Dalton. There's no way those pancakes should have turned out that way. And so we had this gourmet chef. So now Dale and I are going, hmm, how can we get our status back, our title? Hmm. Maybe we'll amp it up with more bacon. We'll sabotage the mix. I'm sure that had a place in this teaching. And so the wisdom here that is being applied is crediting the understanding. And the understanding is that we understand that God has put us in positions both to act in humility and then also to act in confidence. And last verse We'll stop here. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. God's giving you permission to remove yourself from a foolish man. Okay? You can hang around. You will end up being a fool as opposed to leaving a foolish man. You'll become more like him. There's times in which you say, that's not my jurisdiction. That's God's. But you can pray for that foolish man and you can say, praying for you, or let me pray with you, but I've got to go. Oh, why do you got to go? Well, because right now your behavior is not akin to what the scriptures say. To be quite honest, you're being foolish right now. And so the Lord's asking me to just withdraw. But I am delighted to meet you at church. I'm, we can pick this up again, but the the climate has to change. And right now... It's not going to unless I walk away from it. And so there's times in which you do pull back. And that's citing it right there. And that's when you perceive in him the lips of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. And so prudence means that you have the integrity of knowing what is a both safe area of conduct and a reputable assessment of what somebody is doing or what you yourself will do is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. So that's the other thing that marks it. There's deceitfulness in what they are saying. Well, I'm going to close on this one. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright, there is favor. You're favored. Thank you for being upright. And so when you see the mockery that happens and sin being, if you would, exalted, it says why they're a fool. And they can be saved. And they can be adjusted. But the compliment is to you being in favor.